0: Hello and welcome back to the Geeks at the Gate. Uh, we've got a bit of a show for you this evening. We've got more of my interview with um, Ed Whiting, but first we've got a couple of bits of let's call it geeky news because um, there's a few things been doing around on the old internet this week. First up, Kevin—I can't pronounce his last name—Feige, Feige, Feig, one of them—has uh, come forward and spoken a little bit about the controversy surrounding casting Tilda Swinton as the Ancient One in Doctor Strange. Yes, this is this is a show with its finger ever on the pulse for a show that's, what, four years old at this point? Five, even? I don't know. I lose track of time, to be honest. Now, if you don't remember, the issue was that the Ancient One in the Doctor Strange comics is An old, bearded, Asian man. And Tilda Swinton is none of those things. And a lot of people were upset that a part which could have gone to an Asian actor or an Asian American actor. um, A group for whom, let's be honest, parts in big budget Hollywood movies are somewhat few and far between particularly playing the good guys, went to a white woman. Now, the term whitewashing got thrown around a lot, and Figi Feig has come forward now and said, yeah, that wasn't the intention. The intention was to not play to an Asian stereotype, you know, the wizened, old, wise Asian man, um, which in and of itself, you could argue, is a bit of a racist trope. So he wanted to be edgy and do something different and go as far against that stereotype as he could. He has acknowledged now that he could have done it better. And I think that's fair. I think that's fair enough. So you know, would, would would he do it the same way now? No, he wouldn't. Um, and that's good. I'm glad he wouldn't. Um, was Tilda Swinson fantastic in the role? Yeah. Yeah, she was. Would a different actor of different ethnicity have done an equally good job and been equally as opposed to that stereotype? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Probably. So, you know, we live, we learn. Um, an interesting parallel, actually, in this case, uh, to criticism of um, Elizabeth Olsen uh, for um, her portrayal of Wanda Maximov in the WandaVision show, where she was, again, and it was odd to use the term whitewashing for this, but people did because it's the internet. Um, In the movies, um, and in the comics, I think, um, Wanda is Eastern European. And certainly in the movies, Olsen plays the character with that Eastern European accent. In WandaVision, certainly for the beginning, she plays the character with her standard sort of American accent accent. And a lot of fans were upset by this, saying that, you know, there was a rewrite of the character going on and, and you know, Wanda's heritage was being ignored. And I just want to say, I know middle aged white guy bangs on and tells people that something's not racist, but actually that that criticism was misguided because not doing a spoiler for WandaVision here, but it was part of the structure of the show. It was part of the, the fact that her accent was wrong was actually part of the storytelling. It was a subtle part, um, but it was, part. I, I can imagine that there was a, a, a note in the script. Um, I'm not going to say why, because if you haven't seen it, um, it's a wonderful series and I encourage you to. So if I say more, it'll be a spoiler. But I think this brings us to something that we're going to have to do a show on at some point, because we're getting an awful lot of issues around geek culture that are to do with people misunderstanding things and perhaps seeing issues where none should exist. Um, and that's a problematic statement in itself because obviously if if somebody sees an issue, then there is an issue, and it's not good enough to just say, well, How is that racist? That's, you know, we didn't mean it like that. Because if that problem is perceived, there's clearly been at the very least a failure in explanation. Uh, But I do think we maybe all need to react a little bit less and think a little bit more. There you go. The wisdom of a middle-aged white dude. On a less controversial and certainly happier note, I hope, we now have some more pictures of Robert Patterson in the bat suit and still looks good still looks really really good um link obviously this is not a visual medium links in the show notes um both of these images and to the article uh, that I just referred to um Robert Patterson looks amazing in the bat suit just amazing I think he's nailed it. I really do. Um, yeah, I think it's, I'm, I'm quite excited for this one. Um, opens March 2022. So, um, bit of a while to wait, but a decent Batman movie is coming, I think. Also, the car. Ooh, the car. Check the links in the show notes and you'll see what I mean by the car. Guess. Oh. Um, okay, was that it for the geeky news? I think that might have been it for the geeky news. Oh no! One more thing. Again, Batman related because I have a bias. Um, we're getting a new Batman animated series. Uh, it's got Bruce Tim, who was the co-creator of the original Batman the Animated Series, uh, on board as an executive producer. Uh, it's going to be called Batman the Caped Crusader. It's produced by Bruce Timm. J.J. Abrams and Matt Reeves. Now, Matt Reeves, I'm excited about. He's the guy behind The Batman. Um, J.J. Abrams excites me less, but he does have a very good track record. So, yeah, I'll let it fly just for now. Uh, but a decent animated Batman series is something we've been without for a while. And I, it's all good if we're going to get some new decent Batman stuff together. that will be amazing. And that is it for the Geeky News, except to say, um, in a bout of blatant self promotion, I will just point out that Harrogate once again has an open comics shop. Um, Destination Venus is open under the stairs at the Everyman Cinema on Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays at the moment. We will be expanding our opening hours uh, as the summer progresses, Uh, but at the moment I am giving priority to the A-level and GCSE students uh, that are still coming to me as a tutor uh, and who still have um, assessments uh, to do. I uh, guess, you know, it would, they've got like a week, maybe two weeks left. It would be mean to abandon them now. Uh, but, you know, expanding out now is coming. So drop in and see us. It'd be lovely to see you. Um, It's been really nice this week, actually, to be getting into the shop and seeing actual humans. So, yeah, drop in, say hi. And uh, with that, shall we get into the show proper? I think you've listened to me wobble on for quite long enough now. So um, let's move over to the interview with Ed Whiting. So... Tell me, tell me about bigger fish.
1: So it's a it's a self contained one shot, forty pages. It's a crime story set in nineteen seventies New York, involving the mafia, the uh, Mexican cartels, and the NYPD to, uh, in a drug deal. Mm-hmm. Set in the aftermath, the direct aftermath of President Nixon's declaration of a war on drugs which is still going on today, the war on drugs. Nearly, it's actually coming up to June the 21st, 1971, was when they made that, so that's nearly 50 years ago. Are you suggesting that it's not going well? It, well, yes. I think <laughs> you have to turn on the news to see that, you know, it probably hasn't gone as well as they hoped. So... I'm a big fan of crime comics, uh, especially Ed Brubaker and uh, stuff he's doing with Sean Phillips. Big fan mm-hmm. of Criminal and uh, Sleeper. Uh, also a big you know, f- crime novel fan. i like big fan of James Elroy, Elmore Leonard. So I wanted to do something in that sort of vein. Um, also, I'd be writing shorts... For future quake, like a lot of people, I, you know, it's a cliche. I decided, I, oh, I will write my magnum op- opus, my sixty issue, five year space opera.
0: I think we've all got one planned, yeah. Yes, I
1: think everyone has one of them. Uh, <laughs> wrote copious amounts of notes and a few pages here and there, but then you know, quickly gave up, move on to something else, and it just. So decided to write short stories, you know, I think it was that listening to Alan Moore, I think he said he'd done something similar and then decided that was lunacy. And the best thing to do is write something short, send it in, which is what I did, sending it to Dave and the rest of the guys at Future Quake. And then, so the so last few years, I've been sending short stories off to anywhere and everywhere that was still available in the, UK small press, and uh, sort of building my way up. And I thought I'll get writing short stories, and then build up to a one shot, or you know, like do it like twenty. I was originally going to do it just like a twenty page, and it just it kind of kept growing. I wasn't, you know, I always knew it's got to be, it had to be self contained. Because um, mm-hmm. I financed it myself, so that was a good <laughs> that was a good motivator. That I can only afford X amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I can't afford to be writing a hundred page graphic novel because I can't afford to pay for a hundred page graphic novel. You know, I didn't want to. Uh... Obviously, this day and age of Kickstarter, I did think about that briefly, but as no one knows who I am, and realising that crime is a fairly niche genre in comics, especially something that's set, you know, five decades ago. is probably not the most. Um, I thought I'd be a tough sell. So I thought if I do, I if I put my money where my mouth is and self-finance and self-publish this myself, hopefully on the next time round, I'll be able to say to people, you yeah, know, please give me your money. I've I've done this already and it was good. I've done this already. This is this is proof, you know what I've yeah. can do, um, and also to be self-contained. You know, a lot of people, as you know, uh grand plan. Even just like yeah, I thought, I do a four-issue mini series, That's going to take probably a couple of years to do. Mm. Even and that's even if you knew. With successful kickstarters you know everyone's got day jobs um you know, people have only got finite amount of money to spend haven't they on comics you know to, yeah. so yeah it's to do it was to do one shot and uh you know the beginning middle and end it can there could be more if there was any interest I know some people have uh, thought, "Oh, are you going to write anymore?" Which I hadn't planned to. It was supposed to be, you know, there's sort of uh, endings which not a downbeat ending, but there's sort of what's the word? Hell. Um, it could go either way. Mm-hmm. You know, if there was no more, the story work, the story would work. Hopefully. You know, a character finishes in this spot, in like you know, not giving it away, but we have a beginning, middle, and end. That was my main thing to do. I didn't want to sort of like say, right, I'm going to write first issue, and then you know, then it end on the cliffhanger, and then yeah, do. Never-
0: no, I th- I think you pulled that off. Um, it's a it's a satisfying story. On its own I enjoyed it at least but equally I can see that there could be other stories you could tell and were you to write them I would read them is Thank you. is is as is, as is, 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 is big a recommendation as I can give really I, I thoroughly enjoyed it it's uh, I I'm also a fan. I could see your influences. I'm also a fan of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Um, I love criminal. I absolutely adore criminal. Um,
1: okay.
0: But I think there was a real original thought in here. Um, I, I don't think I've read a crime comic quite like Bigger Fish before um having said that having made having made that big statement i'm now struggling to actually put my finger on what sets it apart but it, uh, it it's i would certainly say it's it's not although i can see the influences it's not in any way derivative it's it's a it is very much an original story
1: thank you um, I mean there's lots of uh, you know I said some of the influences on it. Um, what makes it stand out? I mean, I don't have I didn't have any sort of grand statement I wanted to make. It was originally because someone uh, someone did say to me sort of like you need to stop. You know, it's one thing to write be writing short stories, but then you need to be writing something a bit longer. And uh, I'm trying to think of his name now. It's the uh I think I can't remember his name now. It's the old story about if you make for song making yeah, your first film is you take eight people to a house and chop them up. Basically meaning you have a small cast in a central location and that forces you to focus on character. And there's one problem I do have with writing is that I can let stories get away from me. Mm -hmm. because the characters sort of physically wander off to different locations, whereas if I'm going to have to write a self-contained one shot, is to bring all the characters to a central location, and I did sort of noodle about with different ideas of what that location should be. Um, I mean, you can see, I mean, it's in all sorts of genres and is well in crime there's things like speaking of life and on the film front it's like say Reservoir Dogs that was probably a big influence or The Thing um anything that's sort of any sort of or like any sort of any sort of film you can think of where people and it's a comic I'm talking about but yeah I think your films where people are trapped mm-hmm. in a single location because then that's where the, you know the story has to sort of end there. You know, it has to be contained to that area. Um,
0: yeah.
1: I mean, it, it, it was actually something I did start trying to write as, uh, a, like a four or five page short story. Um, but it was just, it was, uh, it just, it was too much. I actually, um. A couple of years ago now, the very first uh, pitch contest for 2000 AD I entered. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I thought of the story. I went there. and I was trying to think. You know, it, you know, it's got to be dense and you know a lot going on. And I, I ran out in the two minutes they were talking. I ran out in the two minutes they gave you. I didn't even finish. And I uh, completely died on my ass. In fact, Paul Cornell was one of the judges, and he said afterwards, he goes, yes, uh, that was a terrible future shot, but probably a decent twenty-four page comic." And uh, so, this is when I, was, when I started writing bigger fish. It was—it was originally, it was, I was just going to do a I think like a f- six-page comic, and I was going to just hire someone, and I was originally going to do it just like trying. Hire different artists to do short portfolio pieces. Uh-huh. You know, I thought if I get, if I write, you know, half a dozen short stories. Um, find various artists to draw them up, and then put them into, and then, then I could self-publish that, and then or I'd have something to sell on or hand out at conventions. I thought that'd be feasible if I, you know, if I had a, say, half a dozen, four or five, six-page short stories, that's 20 to 30 pages. I could probably afford that over the course of a year. And then I'd have something to hand out at, you know, at Thought Bubble or whatever the nearest, you know, con happens to be, or any con I went to. Mm -hmm. So that's how big a fish started at. it's not quite how it is in the comic. It was, I don't even think it was set in the 70s to start with. I think it was purely about a a drug trade. And then I was very much in the, uh, the 2000 AD headspace of got to have a twist, got to have a twist. And it all kind of sort of sprang from there, really. Um, yeah. And so it got bigger, but in the back of my head, it was like, it has to be – I've only I, – I think I'd set myself – I think 40 pages was the uttermost limit I was going to go to. There is original – I think the very first draft was 28 pages. But It was way too – it was way too talky. It was way too um, cluttered. Um, I hope it works for other people I've lost it's been so long now since I started it I've lost any sense of to credibly you know focus on it really it's I've lived with it so long now that I can't you know
0: yeah no it's I I mean how long has it been as a as a as a writing process
1: I wrote two years ago I wrote it the first draft. I mean I've tweaked it constantly since then. Uh-huh. Um but that's only like the old dialogue change. I it's probably like I think now four I think four four drafts and then but then after the fourth draft was just tweaking dialogue here and there. Mm-hmm. I didn't. Cut, I didn't. I cut quite a lot of dialogue out of it. I didn't cut any um, sort of plot threads or anything. What you see in the finished comic is more or less, uh, more or less, what was there from the beginning. I think actually I cut characters down. Really, I think there was more characters involved all the principal parties had more people involved with them. There's mm-hmm. two cops. If people ever read it, well, they'll see how many. There was much more. there's more. The three main groups of the police, the mafia and the cartels all had more people in it. Uh-huh. And that was cut down because really at the end it was a then just it <laughs> came down to end of it with me as well it's a lot of characters to keep track of and most of them aren't really serving any purpose to the plot they're just there standing around and maybe have the odd one line or two they're not really doing anything mm-hmm. um so if they're, not, if they're not serving it's like anything if they're not serving any purpose to the plot cut them out um and that was when it was not as many pages as well, so it was really everything in the final the final version you see was probably in the first version in some level but because it was in less pages it felt very cluttered um, very uh, yeah way too way too <laughs> way too talky um Which is me probably being, oh, I'm a writer, must focus on all the dialogue and obviously not let, not thinking about the art because, you know, for a long time it's just words on the paper and, you know, yeah. Yeah, It's only for Haken and Rob and Joe. It's been, it's as much their comic as it is mine. If it wasn't for them, it would be just words on a paper, you know, a fairly, you know, a radio play, if that. Um, They're the ones who, you know, helped bring it to life. They've done, all of them have done a fantastic job.
0: I think that's something that people don't appreciate about comics, actually, is that what a collaborative enterprise it it really is. I mean, I'm going to disagree with you slightly in that I think Bigger Fish is primarily your comic because it's, it's your vision you you made this happen you went and found the people to work with but having said that then yeah i mean you you made the words and i I don't know I, i i haven't seen your script so i don't know how much instruction you gave to the artists um but
1: I do the, the, so artists, well,
0: the the artists I mean again correct me if I'm wrong but the artists drew not necessarily what you told them to draw but certainly what you suggested they should draw because you provided them with the script that had the scenarios in it
1: and um, they interpreted
0: the visuals from that
1: yeah I mean I kind of I am very much uh, the John Wagner's school of scripting I tried to keep it all very terse I'm not a particularly visual person I don't think I can picture it in my head mm-hmm. but I don't dwell on that because ultimately I can't draw so it'll never I know anything I write I know will never look on the finished page what it looks like in my head so I try not to really focus on what it will look like because that's so something that's out of my hands.
0: You're not the kind of writer that provides like detailed instructions about what things should look like.
1: No, I think the characters were just described, uh, their age, um, any ethnicity they would have. But then Haken obviously asked me what I had in mind. So I sent him a lot of visual references to the sort of, you know to films or other comics or just, you know, images, you know, so beginning, you know, like he said, Oh, what, what do you think the street looks like? So I just, you know, and this to the age you kind of like Googled, you know, seventies, New York, Brownstone buildings, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or the Bronx 1970s and then sent him, you know, a dozen pictures of that half a dozen pictures of that and said, well, this is what New York looked like in, 1971 don't you know use that as your visual uh-huh. i didn't do anything you know i didn't do anything about layouts I, you know I, I did put how many panels per page just you know but i didn't specify any way oh, this page has to be laid out by like this because you know haken would have a much better clue for that and same with uh with Joe on the colours, he asked me what I wanted. and I'd say to him, I guess, you know, I'm the least qualified person on this comic. You lot have all, um, you lot have all done far more work than me. I mean, Rob is, seems to be lettering someone else's comic every other day when I follow him on Twitter. Mm. He's a man's a machine. Um, so, yeah, all of them are far more qualified so, than I am. So I said to Joe, you know, he says, what do you want? and he was asking for the colours. And I said, well, probably something like, you know, like in Criminal, that sort of, you know, it's supposed to be set in the 70s, so something a bit more subdued and, you know, and he got what I meant, because obviously he knew what Criminal was, so he mm. did that. You say it's my comic, but Joe, if it hadn't been for Joe, because I'm the least technically minded person you will ever meet, uh, he you know, he formatted it all for me um you know got me a decent sized PDF so I could send to people that wouldn't crash their inbox or anything like that so you know he put it all together he designed the logo got it all together so else I could send it through to printing and it yeah, of me for Joe it, it, it we just pages sat on my computer right? basically just me looking at them and going oh these look really great and then but then seeing it all come together was it's, it's taken away. So, going back to, so two years ago that I wrote it, and then I think it's just as lockdown started, I think Haken started drawing it. Uh-huh. I think when it was finished, because originally, my original, I got it all together. I mean, I was hoping to release it at Thought Bubble last year or in time for Thought Bubble. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen. So, once lockdown started, it, it became sort of the less priority to get it out as soon as possible. Everyone had other things to worry about, you know, Mm. getting the comic out when there's a global pandemic on. didn't seem to be high priority, really. So I just let Haken, you know, go at his own speed and obviously what I could afford to pay him as and when. So I I can't even think when he finished now, it's all... Like for a lot of people, the last year has all blurred into one. Mm. Um, it's we only finished a few months ago. It's, uh, and then me being impatient is like, oh, it's so long now. I just want to get this out in the world. And, uh, yeah, you that, it? it's you know, it's, it's slow, it's slow at this level,
0: yeah, because everybody's got day jobs and art in particular takes time and 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 there's no way to rush it really you know it's all very well saying you know Jack Kirby could do 15 pages a day or whatever his rate was it was because I know he, but that's all he did yeah and and there, there, there are two sides to that I mean first of all if if you can spend you know your entire working day just doing art, you're clearly going to be more prolific than somebody who's only got two hours in an evening. And if you can spend your entire working day doing art, the amount of practice that gives you is going to just make you faster.
1: Oh, undoubtedly, yeah. I mean, yeah, all the all the all, all the other three guys have all got day jobs. Well, I think Rob has gone full time as a letterer now. Now oh, has he? Um pretty sure he has yeah uh, but Joe, Joe's a graphic designer so I appreciate for him that you know he's spending all day doing art. doing art because he's obviously he's an artist as well as a colorist. he's uh, he does a lot of work with Matt Garvey um, yes they, yeah uh, I,
0: I knew I'd seen his name before somewhere
1: yeah they've done they've done quite a few things they've done uh, Pray For Us which is a like uh, horror survival comic. Mm-hmm. It's very good and uh, big f off worms to so use its sanitized title on the cover. <laughs> uh, I think they're doing something else. I Matt's so prolific that I kind of lose. track I see, of it, it
0: really is hard to keep track with Matt, isn't it? I I I don't understand where he finds the time, all the energy.
1: No, he's he's another one who's uh who's an absolute machine. He is. Yeah, I enjoy watching his uh YouTube videos on how to I'm watching his I'm watching his YouTube videos because he's doing one on how to run a Kickstarter at the moment. So um he's making me more confident of hopefully being able to run a Kickstarter for my next project. Cause uh yeah, I thought sure I can afford to pay uh, everything again
0: well I think Kickstarter also is I mean I'm speaking from a position of complete ignorance having never run a Kickstarter
1: but knowing oh, a lot of people
0: knowing a lot of people who have I think it's also it's a good way of gauging your audience. If you if you can run a successful Kickstarter, then you know you've got at least that many readers. It's like this this many people read the description of what I want to do and thought, yeah, I'll read that. And that's that's quite useful, I would have thought. And it's also actually just a really good way of managing pre-orders.
1: Yes. I, some people did, when I put a uh, ask for advice online, uh, some people did say, oh, if you've got a finished comic, you really should run a Kickstarter, but not having done it, and at that point also not having any money left to... It would have been the most bare-bones Kickstarter ever, like, pledge this money, get a PDF copy, pledge this money, get a physical copy, pledge this money, get a PDF and a physical copy. No money left for stretch goals or Mm. anything else. Um, So hopefully, hopefully this comment will at least prove that I can, if any people read it and the word gets out, that I prove myself I can deliver, hopefully, a quality product and people would be more likely to entrust their money to me for a future project
0: well having read it i uh, in pdf only i don't have a physical copy yet but i will i will be buying a physical copy as soon as i can um i would certainly buy your next
1: oh, thank you
0: and um, well- and i'm not just saying that because i'm talking to you um because i i could have just skirted around this if i didn't like it um i i really enjoyed bigger fish i thought it it's a really cool in the best sense of that word take on the sort of 70s crime thriller um it's it's not it's not derivative and that's actually hard i mean the, the there's so much stuff out there already in that 70s drugs crime thing going on it's it's, it's hard to not be derivative just by accident because yeah. there's so much stuff out there but i think it i think it genuinely had something interesting to say on the subject um, I thought that the, the world building and the characters were really engrossing. I mean, I was, I was completely sucked in for all 40 whatever it is pages. Um, and as I say, when I got to the end, I was at the same time completely satisfied. It's like, yeah, this is a complete story. It's a whole meal. Um, I... I'm not left sort of feeling cheated and thinking hang on a, hang on a minute what what about so and so that loose end hasn't been tied up and and yeah you've left me on a cliffhanger and, and I didn't get any of that it was it was a a, a, be- a beautifully resolved bit of narrative but equally there was enough in it that I was thinking I'd quite like more of this more of this would be great, and I mean, you know, and that's hard to pull off. It really is it's genuinely hard to pull off. I, I, have
1: seen a lot that, of. I, I, would, I like to say that's my genius, but it's not. It, that is by accident rather than design. Um, well, you, you <laughs> see that, but it. you, you did it. A few people have said, "Oh, I'd like to see more," but I really wasn't thinking. This is, you know, part one of a bigger, a bigger story. It was, Mm -hmm. it really just describes something that was self-contained, and oh, and it it, it absolutely is. I I think um, also because just so much media nowadays is whether it be comics or film. It's this is part one of a much bigger story, and. You watch part one and it's not not like, well, we make something and if it's successful, we'll make another part. So the first part still stands alone as an original story. Mm -hmm. So much stuff now as well. This is part one and it's more set up for something that comes later down the line. I wrote it not thinking, oh, if this has any kind of success or even if it doesn't, you know. This is, are we, we, you know, pumping out more issues of this regardless? But you You see, I think, you know, know, tell a one and done story.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a good philosophy. I mean, I I think a lot of people now kind of set out to write a story and in the back of their mind, there's the, I want to be the next Marvel Cinematic Universe. I want to have all of these, you know, I've got all of these stories I'm going to tell that are all going to be interwoven and, and, and connected and stuff. And I think your approach is probably better because when they started the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it was just Iron Man. Yeah. Nobody, nobody knew it was going to be a success. In fact, the odds were very much against it. I mean, Robert Downey Jr.
1: was kind of washed up. In 2008, I think he and I think he was on his comeback. He'd done Kiss Kiss Bang
0: Bang. I thought yeah. he didn't kiss Kiss Bang Bang, yeah. But I mean, and yeah, Iron Man. I mean, when yeah, I heard yeah,
1: you're w- right, it was a big,
0: I, 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 and when I heard they were making an Iron Man movie, my, my initial response was, Well, why? Because um, you know, it's very much a very much a sea at the time, and think, well, but they I'm made little- it. I, and, and sorry, the reason the reason I'm bringing this up as an example is they made it and they made it good. And that made people want more. And Do you know what? If there hadn't been the interest, in you know, if Iron Man had been a moderate success as opposed to the massive smash that it was, you know, they could have just left it at Iron Man and everybody would, everybody would have been happy. Nobody would have been thinking, oh, well, they've left all of this unresolved. You know, people just have been like, yeah, that was a decent movie. I enjoyed
1: it. It's done now. But, well, but until they, the, the post credits bit at the end, you don't know that it's setting anything else up.
0: Well, exactly. And do you know what? I, I mean, I don't know this for sure, but I'm I'm reasonably sure that that post credits sequence at the end was maybe not initially planned all that much, because because well, you also have the post credit sequence at the end of the Incredible Hulk. Where Tony Stark turns up, and that's clearly filmed a lot long a, a long time after they actually shot the movie. So, I I don't think when they set out when when they set out to make Iron Man, they set out to make the MCU that we now have.
1: Well, at that point, they because of bankruptcy in the 90s had haven't they? All the right, all the different rights have been sold off to. Mm. Yeah, so they only had the B the of... MCU that we have now. Is very different from the one we would have got if they'd owned. Well, they own the rights to everyone now, but if they don't, yeah. The but right if, if they'd
0: it, had the yeah. X Men and Spider Man and stuff, they'd have used
1: them for Fantastic sure. Thought. But probably would have on.
0: But the reason the reason I'm bringing that up in this context is, I sort of think that's kind of what you've done. You've produced a perfectly a perfectly capsule standalone story. That if you if you don't ever want to write any more in that world with those characters, it'll still stand alone and be perfectly satisfying. As Iron Man would have been.
1: Yes. Had they not made
0: any more. Um but equally, if you decide, do you know what? I can go back into that world. I can do more with that. You could. And it wouldn't feel forced. It wouldn't feel like I, you know, I I'd written this story that was just on its own, but now it's been successful, so I'm going to do some more. In the way that, this is a horrible analogy, and I apologise for it before I even start, but in the way that First Blood is...
1: First Blood is a great film. A
0: very good movie that was clearly designed to be a one-and-done in and of itself, based on a novel where the hero dies at the end, John Rambo think, dies at the end of the I novel, was, so. but then it was successful, so they made Rambo.
1: You know, you wouldn't be doing that. suicide ending to it. I'm sure they did, and it was tested and positive, so it was cut. That wouldn't surprise me.
0: But but even the ending that we got, I mean, it was it was clearly that you know this story is over now, and don't expect any more. But then it was a success, so they made Rambo, and that was a mistake in my view. But you wouldn't be if you did a sequel to bigger fish, even bigger fish, let's say, it wouldn't be forced like that that you've given you you've created a world where you could go back to it in a perfectly sensible way that wouldn't feel forced that would feel narratively satisfying
1: I've got a few very rough ideas it all it all really depends on if there was any kind of demand for it, I wouldn't want to say, look, I've written a second, here's a second story, whether you like it or not, and <laughs> force it into the world.
0: Uh, for sure. I mean, and and, and and that is the business of comics, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And people have said, oh, I'd like to see more. Um, Away and see. I've, you know, like probably like every other writer out there, I've Hundreds of ideas in various stages.
0: Okay, Uh, you can find out next week what some of the ideas that Ed has in his head are. But for right now, we are going to move on to this. Because we have got quite a bit of sciency type news for you this week. Um, my usual aviation and uh, space biases are still showing, I'm afraid. Um, but you know how we're not allowed to fly anywhere anymore because we're not allowed to fly anywhere anymore? Uh, when we come back from that, there's going to be a cost. One of the very few good things to come out of the global pandemic we're all still experiencing, has been the drastic cut in the amount of CO2 and other pollutants that have been put into the atmosphere. And one of the reasons there's been that dramatic cut is nobody's been flying for the last 18 months. Eventually, that's going to change. And all of those planes are going to start putting all of that CO2 back into the atmosphere and they do it at quite high altitudes. So, you know, it, it, it makes a difference. So what's the solution? Well, electric cars are being touted as the solution to ground-based pollution. Um, not entirely problem-free, but okay. How about electric planes? Now, there are all kinds of reasons why electric planes are a horrible idea from an engineering perspective. Um, Basically, electric planes need batteries. Batteries are heavy. Planes like to be light. So you've got a lot of diminishing returns there. The more power in terms of battery you put into your plane, the more power it needs to get airborne. And it's a difficult challenge. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. Um, and the reason I say it's not impossible is because somebody's done it. Aviation, uh, a Washington based uh, aeronautics company, has announced that its plane, Alice, um, is going to make its first flights. Now, this is a cool looking aircraft. Uh, Links in the show notes uh, to the article that I'm quoting from here, which has pictures of the plane. Um, It's a lovely looking aircraft. It's very sleek. It's got a high V tail um, and it's a tri-motor. It's got three pusher prop engines, all powered by electricity. I really wish them well. Um, it's a nine-seat luxury plane. It's got a 506-mile radius um, range if if it's fully charged, and obviously that I'm imagining would be subject to appropriate weather conditions and all of that stuff. I don't know about you, that doesn't seem all that far. I mean, it's fine as a, if if you want to do you know a, a hop from london to edinburgh say um could do that on a charge but what if we're gonna go you know from new york to la you're gonna have to land somewhere i you know but you know we had these problems with electric cars they're beginning to be overcome uh and it's nice to be making a start so well, welcome to aviation and they're actually rather beautiful electric plane uh in other news because. That's aeronautics, but it's not space. Um, Some really, really interesting news here. Um, I don't think we've spoken on the show before about NASA's Artemis project, which is their project to go back to the moon. Um, There was an announcement, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, that um, everybody's favourite Bond villain Elon Musk's SpaceX had been awarded the contract to provide the lander. Uh, to actually take people from what will be a space station in orbit around the moon down to the surface, uh, based on uh, the SpaceX Starship technology. Makes perfect sense. Uh, We have spoken about why vertical landing using retro rockets is silly on Earth, but quite useful on the moon. Um, Joining that project now is South Korea. This is important for several reasons. Uh, You can't do this kind of thing anymore on your own. The International Space Station is international for a reason. Um, Cooperation and lots of people working together is the way forward. Um, China disagrees, but more of them later. South Korea is joining the Artemis project. Um, They're in negotiations now. Um, They're keen to get on board. And it looks as though that's going to happen. Uh, they're already flying instrumentation out there uh, using NASA. Uh, the Korean Pathfinder Lunar Orbiter um, is uh, is ongoing. That That's going to be going up on a Falcon 9 rocket next year. Um, uh, stay tuned to this. This could be huge. Um, South Korea is a, is a tech giant these days. And having them on board could make a lot of things easier and more cost effective, uh, which makes the likelihood that project Artemis will actually get people back to the moon. Um, it makes it just more likely. So yay. And staying with space. Um, I mentioned China a second ago. China is getting back into the news. Um, China is becoming a little problematic because it doesn't talk to people. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that you know cooperation is the way to go. China doesn't cooperate. China does its own thing, which it, it absolutely is right. But one of its more recent satellite launches—it um, wasn't a satellite, it was a space station. One of, they, they were launching um, components for. Chinese space station, they delayed the launch a little bit from when it was scheduled, which meant that the rocket they sent up with this component of the Chinese space station came within, I think it's about 20 miles of the International Space Station, which in orbital terms is terrifyingly close. And... You know there were people in mission control at NASA and and at Roscosmos who were genuinely fearful that there was there was a danger of a collision here. Um, so you know China, I hope, will get more on board with the international cooperation side of space. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, it has just released the first pictures taken by its rover on Mars. Uh, we hear a lot about the NASA and the European missions to Mars because NASA and ESA are publicity hungry organizations uh, and they've released pictures all the time. The Chinese don't do that. So you may not even have known that there was a Chinese rover on Mars, but there is. Um, It's called Zhurong and uh, it landed uh, fairly recently, last week, I think. So it's not been there there terribly long. Uh, It landed at the weekend, in fact, on Sunday it's only the second nation after America to successfully put a probe on the surface of Mars. Um, The European space agency has put a probe on the surface of Mars, but spectacularly unsuccessfully has to be said, poor old Beagle too. Um, And it sent back an image of its solar panels and a bit of the, the Martian surface. And it's kind of cool that More science is being done. As I say, I wish it was more cooperative, but you can't have everything. Links, as ever, in the show notes uh, for all of these articles. Uh, So um, go, go take a look. And finally, it is time for our comic of the week. And I'm not sure you could call this a break from tradition. This is only episode five. Can you have tradition after five episodes? But in a break from what we've done before, I've only got one comic to recommend for you this week, and it's not in fact a comic that came out this week. It's just a comic I've been catching up with, and that is Boom Studios' Firefly series. Now, the problematic nature of Joss Whedon notwithstanding, I love Firefly. It is one of my favourite TV shows. It's my joint favourite science fiction TV show, right up there with Babylon Five. Um, both flawed in different ways, but I love them both utterly. Now, the thing about Firefly, the thing about Firefly, is um, it ran as a series for quite a long time uh, over at Dark Horse, and then Dark Horse sort of lost a lot of its licences. Uh, it lost the aliens and the predators and that kind of thing. To Marvel, because obviously they're all owned by Disney now. And it lost Firefly and Buffy to Boom. Now, I like Boom Studios. They're a great little publisher. And what they did with Firefly was set up a series of adventures taking place between the end of Firefly the series and the movie Serenity. And they did quite a lot with that. They developed the character of Mal Reynolds, particularly, and developed the relationships of all the various characters, introduced some new characters, which I think was important. And then they did—they finished all of that off, and now we've moved to a post-Serenity world where they've shaken things up even more. And I'm not going to give you any spoilers, uh, but it's it's brilliantly done. I think this is how you develop a universe that was started by somebody else. Uh, The most recent issue is issue 28, which is the start of something very new in the verse. Um, All 28 issues have been written by Greg Pak. There's been some fantastic artwork from various artists. and. It's just brilliant. Um, if you are somebody who enjoyed the TV series Firefly, uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, by the way, uh, there are several episodes of Geeks at the Gates that talk about Firefly, and we will be coming back to it. Um, if you enjoy Firefly, if you fell in love with the crew of Serenity, and I failed to see how you could watch Firefly and not do so, this is a series that's like a warm pair of slippers. It's nice to spend time with these people again. It's nice to see how their lives progressed. Um, And I cannot recommend it highly enough. There are several um, collections now of the earlier issues, uh, and I commend them to you. And once again, time's Wigged Chariot has beaten us. That's all we've got time for this week. We'll be back next week uh, with, as I say, more of Ed's ideas for stories and more science news more comics news maybe even a little bit of geeky news who knows um just very quickly once again show notes are available at www.destinationvenus.co.uk and if you want to get in touch about anything we've talked about anything you or just pop into the shop for a chat it's always nice for us to have a bit of a natter we're open wednesdays and Fridays 1 o'clock till 6 o'clock, and Saturdays 10 till 6. So, you know, get in touch. Until we meet, once again, to go geeking. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Stay safe. And above all else, keep being geeky. (laughs)